Welcome get back to Calling Shots. This is Seth Partnow. I am joined today by uh, the second in a string of eponymous uh, guests. Um, you might know him on Twitter as Bowser to Bowser. He is a high school coach in the New York City area, and he's come on a couple times to sort of break down some, on a tactical level, what he's seeing in the NBA right now. And one of the big stories in the NBA right now, or for the start of this year, has been unusually how much offense has been ahead of defense early in the season. Normally we see it the other way around. And so I wanted to ask him, um, what's up with that? So Bowser, how are you doing? Thanks for coming on. And, you know, uh, just a, just a, a small, tiny little question with obvious answers. Yeah. Um, w- w- what do you got? Uh, what is the entire NBA offense doing? What is every, every, yeah, exactly. What are they doing? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Let me just get yeah. this done right before I solve world hunger and, and world peace. Um, so before I, I have a lot of ideas, but for this, what's your process when it comes to like finding out if this is real and then finding out what's driving the trend, if it is real, like, how did, how would you go, like, how did you go about this? Or, or what do you, what do you do in order to, to separate the signal from the noise? So I think it's, it's the first thing you have to do is try to break it down into component parts. I mean, one of the things you, you you messaged me kind of before about, you know, some trends you were seeing and <clears throat> not to steal your thunder, but you, one thing you were mentioning is like certain kinds of turnovers are up, you know, dead mm-hmm. ball turnovers, travel calls are up. Uh, and that's, you know, that is, that is the kind of thing where knowing that the, that travel and palming and stuff like that has been a point of emphasis this year. Um, that's kind of something we tend to see is like the point of emphasis thing starts off really high first three or so weeks of the season and then kind of drops tends to drop back off to the uh, uh, sort of standard levels. I think we, um, that was was sort of my theory in part of why offense was way down at the start of last season was the point of emphasis was like not giving the, the, um, I don't know, what's the best way? I guess the Trey Young flail foul at, at, at the start of last season. And then that, you know, Players weren't doing it as much, but they also started calling it more over the course of the season, and that probably brought offensive rating up a little bit. Um, so I think that, <clears throat> excuse me, so so something like that where you know it's a uh, a point of emphasis, you, you, can, you can, well, okay, this will be around for a month and then might fade away. But other times it's just like, okay, what's going on here? Um, and so is like offensive rebounding being up, is that, is there reason to think that that's not real? I, I don't think so. So maybe that's an actual change. Um, and so that, that part of whether it's real or not is, is um, once you figured out like what the driver of a, of a thing is from a statistical standpoint, um, you, you kind of you make an educated guess based on sort of contextual factors of whether it's a, an actual change or just a blip. Right. Yeah, and you we talked about offensive rebounding. So, and I, I think I remember you, on Nerd or something you mentioned it. But I was looking. What I was surprised was two point offensive rebound percentage is down, but three point and free throw, but 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 three point offensive rebound percentage is so much higher that overall offensive rebound percentage is higher, and that was one of the things where I was like. That makes sense based on what I've seen. I've seen like more aggressive crashing the glass this year. And then sure enough, you know, you look at the numbers that actually is a league wide like trend going up. And one of the things I noticed was 
a lot of the teams that had shifted the most, they were like uh, teams that had jumped, like Phoenix went from like 15th to first. And like, you know, Phoenix has had injuries, no Jay Crowder, the Cam Johnson, CP3 has been injured. And like, they theoretically, like they should have lost some strength on offense, um, especially because they've gotten like more defensive-minded role players, if, I'm, if that's fair to say. Uh, but one of the things they seem to be doing differently is like crashing the glass. They went from like 15th on three-point offensive rebound percentage to like, I think they're first now, um, like a 50% increase. And some of the overachieving teams are doing this and it makes sense. And it's, have you noticed this trend of like teams crashing harder for offensive rebounds? I, broadly speaking, yes, I hadn't noticed that it was specific to three-pointers. Um, I think that <clears throat> that makes sense. Yeah, it's also long too. So I've noticed it, but it's, it's, uh, cause typically it's like if you're closer to the hoop, there's more, you know, like floaters have a better offensive rebound chance than a, you know, mid range pull up or whatever. Um, but what I've kind of noticed is like some teams, they will send based on personnel. Like, let's be honest, CP3 is not crashing hard for offensive rebounds very often and Booker is not doing it either. But like Tory Craig is doing it a lot and, uh, what's up, uh, Damian Lee and, uh, Dwayne Washington and uh, teams like Cleveland are the players who are on the baseline kind of when the shot goes up are instead of choosing to convert they're they're crashing yeah and so one of the things is the players on the if you're the baseline corner they're doing this thing where like they will sort of it's sort of like a Maggette cut they're sort of like doing a banana shaped cut right toward, toward the elbow where it's like they can get back on defense if they don't have a chance but if they do have a chance they can curl and get the offensive rebound and one of the things I'm noticing is sometimes all they're doing is like compromising the, the defensive shell box out. Like if there's four guys defensively who are sort of in a semicircle, if you get Dwayne Washington, you know, kind of, it sort of, it kind of reminds me of like uh, old warfare where like, if you get, if you get across enemy lines and then their, and then their integrity of their front is, is shaken. It's like sometimes the way Washington will crush, will start to crash, and then that, that allows Aiton to get the offensive rebound, right? It's not necessarily they're always getting the rebound, but having that player come in so aggressively uh, compromises the defensive shell box out. And so sometimes if the player on the corner will curl to the elbow, and then if he has a chance, he'll crash hard. Um, and then other times, like Cleveland does it the opposite. They crash from the wing, and the corner guy gets back. So, like, if it's, if it's Kevin Love's in the corner – he gets back on defense, but if but if he's on the wing, he might like forty five cut in and get an offensive rebound, or, or at least just crash the glass like that. So Cleveland, because they have a, they have a lot of athletic guys, and they don't besides Kevin Love, they don't have a lot of older guys. Um, they seem to crash based on like their positioning on the floor, whereas like Milwaukee does it too. Like Javon Carter, Bochamp, um, Nora they'll crash a lot more than, you know, Brooke Lopez will. But Brooke Lopez will get off his rim because he's big and good at it and he's, if, if he's by the rim. Um, but, like, Drew Holiday will do sort of the half crash thing where he'll, like, come around the elbow and if he gets a chance, he'll crash. But Nora, I have this one clip where they are crashing before it's Nora and Bochamp are crashing when Javon Carter does a pump fake. Like, they fall for the pump fake and they crash. And then they realize, oh, it's a pump fix. So then they get back out. And then there is a kickout pass and another three. And again, they're crashing before the shot even goes up. So, like, this, I noticed more, you know, offensive rebounds kind of been training up for a little bit. But more coaches have 
have sort of embraced it and realized, hey, if you have only one guy back as your transition defender and he crashes, well, then you're screwed, right? Because if you're going to run out, you're giving up a wide open layup, especially because there's no take foul anymore. But if you have like a design, these two guys stay back, these two guys crash, then you can get the, the available points of offensive rebounding um, without sort of uh, without giving up too much transition points. Because after all, like it's a trade-off. If you can get 10 extra yeah. points from crashing, but give up four more points of transition, you know, plus six margin. Um, right. And, and like in like Utah, one thing they do that's cool with offensive rebounding is they've really embraced the like transition, semi-transition three. And I realized partly they can do it because they like have a numbers advantage and they'll crash the offensive rebound. So if there's 18 seconds on the shot clock, 15 seconds, they might put up a quick three because the other team has a has cross matched and there's a, you know, Kelly Olenek is being guarded by, uh, I don't know, TP3 or whatever down low. And so you have some size advantage that you can get. Like, like if you have a, whatever, 1.0, points per shot expectation, but you have a 30% offensive rebound rate and that has a 1.2 or three, whatever the, the point, all of a sudden right. that's a pretty good possession. Um, and I've noticed that they, they let it fly kind of like a Grinnell team or like a college, you know, like Creighton, all those teams that will let it fly in transition, but they seem to do it when they have a size or numbers advantage to let them crash for offensive rebounds. Cause one of the things it's like, why is Utah this good after trading its two franchise players and getting a, of picks and it, and they are a very interesting case study of like why is offensive rating so much higher? Yeah, we're we're going to talk about Utah more. I, I there was some stuff about them I wanted to ask you about. So this is uh, th- this is this is interesting because this is a good um, this is something that has been sort of in you know Daryl Morey has talked about this a lot and it's it's one of those things that that I, I wrote about it a little in the book like the we we kind of understand the math of what the trade off has to be basically. It's, you know, give or take uh, every if you get one more offensive rebound for about every three additional transition chances you give up, you're breaking even. And so figuring out now there are there there are some of those lying around, but figuring out which ones, which, which shots, which positions you can actually go for the rebound and think you'll get it mm-hmm. enough times to make up for that. And. You know, starting with with three pointers is, is it, it may be counterintuitive, given that what you said earlier about shots at the rim, shots from the you know mm-hmm. floater range being more offensive reboundable. But the flip side is like you know part of if, you, if you're taking an above the break three, um, w- one of the advantages those those have traditionally been, especially if it's a big guy taking it, those have been traditionally very hard shots to to fast break on because mm-hmm. just by nature of how the floor is set up when the shot goes up you're probably in pretty good floor balance. So that's probably why you can, you can, you know, well, okay. The guy in the baseline isn't really the important guy. The guy in the weak side corner might not be the important guy for the floor balance, especially if the, like the strong side corner is getting back. Cause you already have like the, you know, you're already in cover two almost. So you yeah. can, you can, you can, you know, you can bring a linebacker if you will. Um, because you're, you're already, you've got the, you've got the deep, you know, covered well. So that, I think that is a, um, a way that teams have either either they've either mathed it out with you know help of of some statistical analysis or just kind of intuited that hey we've already got two guys back because of the shape of the floor so mm-hmm. we can take this risk and it probably won't hurt us th- that much. And that reminds me of a one of your ideas that I may have 
adopted over the years about the importance of Brooks Lopez making above the big, above the break threes instead of just corner threes, where it's like, well, then you have your the the goalie of your defense is already you know back for transition defense. Whereas if he's in the corner, that's a long 94 feet. Brooks Lopez has to go run to contest something at the rim, and so the fact that he could make above the break threes already helps with the geometry of the court. And you know, if he's above the break, that means DeAndre Ayton, whoever's above the break, and gives more offensive rebounding opportunities. And so one of the you know, like common automatic teams do is the speaking of, of big shooting threes above the break it's like if Brook Lopez it hits the pick and pop and he's on top of the key um, the player on the weak side wing will automatically basket cut like like kind of burn the pop I think they call it or like the, the 45 cut on the weak side wing to make to prevent that weak side wing defender from stunting at Brook Lopez in this instance right so that's to tip or not to tip but like that's been a common combination of actions the pop with the cut and it's kind of funny because what i've noticed now is or in the past the 45 cut would start happening but but if it was a three-point shot the guy cutting would kind of like like slow up and start getting back on defense but now that 45 cut is turning into crashing the offensive glass where it's like it's like it's like he'll cut maybe to get the pass if his defender stunts that brick lopez too hard but if he doesn't get the pass and Lopez shoots the pick and pop three, that cut just turns into crashing the offensive glass. And so I'm seeing this thing where it's like, it's the it's the cut is so early that it doesn't even feel like you're crashing the glass. It's because you you could get the pass when you start the cut, but the shot goes up and you keep crashing, and all of a sudden you're there for the offensive rebound opportunity. Whereas you know it used to just be like, oh, if you don't get the pass and they shoot, try to get back on defense. So that's a you know, Another trend I've been seeing, sort of, when the, uh, you know, I haven't watched every single game by every single team, but I have to watch a lot. And so, I, as you were saying, I do see more crashing on above the break threes than on the corner threes, and also when bigs are, are shooting the pick or, or not even pick about, but shooting the three above the break, because that brings Aiden away from the paint or whoever, you know. Sure, that, that makes sense. Defensive that, rebounder. That makes a lot of sense. Um. Speaking of cutting, this this sort of and 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 especially cutting from kind of a spot up position, this is this brings us kind of back to Utah. Something I've noticed watching them. First of all, there's there's kind of two things. One one of my theories, and we can get back to this because it's a it's kind of a bigger question than I have a smaller one. Is it seems like Utah is the almost the prime example of teams going to more playmakers on the floor and not necessarily like playing multiple point guards, but Utah, depending on, you know, who is on the floor, they have usually have four, even five guys who can, you know, dribble, dribble pass and to some degree shoot. Okay. Walker Kessler can't shoot, but he can, he can dribble and pass. Um, uh, Jared Vanderbilt to some degree can maybe hit a corner to three, but can, but so that's, 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 you know, on ball, ball handling. Yep. As Buki does not have, for example. Yeah, uh, to put it mildly. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's that's the, the bigger is is this is move back away from kind of a heliocentric to a, a, a diffused ball handling and playmaking. Specifically, though, Utah, it seems like I don't remember seeing a team that you know instead of just spotting up in the corners has their guys cut out of the corners as much as, as I've seen from Utah this year. And it's not just Vanderbilt. It's Laurie Markkinen is, is, you know, when, when, you know, they, they get a short roll off a, off a, like a high ball screen, like Markkinen is, is like crashing in off, off the, uh, the, like the weak side corner. Sometimes he's spotting up. Is this something that, that 
you've noticed watching them? Is this something that you've noticed from other teams? Because uh, it seems like, you know, the, rather than being like the, the contrast for me, much of the year has been like when they've been healthy, it's been Philadelphia, where like Harris and PJ Tucker are just like planted in the corner and not moving. And just the difficulty in guarding if that guy can either spot up or cut seems like a much bigger defensive challenge. So the Philadelphia mention reminds me of something Chris Paul said about Doc Rivers, is that Doc Rivers is really good at calling plays for shooting guards, um, which is kind of a way of saying, you know, all right, he's subtext. It was a funny thing for him that's like an academia player to say it. Um, but the fact that Philly is not on the forefront of this. So are you saying weak side corner? You mean like the, the corner that would be the typical baseline drift corner, right? Or the... Uh, basically, the corner where 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 maybe the, the the tag is coming off of essentially. Exactly, exactly. So it's kind of funny because you know traditionally it was always like you know fill the corners right, and now you get that kick out three. Um, and Utah's doing it. Cleveland's also doing this thing where you have you'll have the baseline corner guy cut, and the tagger can't see it right. Like he can't look behind him and still tag the roller if like Markin's on the short roll. And if if the tagger comes over to, to tag Markkinen, then the, the nail defender, the, the high eye and the weak side defender, he's got to zone up those two guys. And you, if you, first off, if you zone up and you try to look at, it's almost impossible to have your eye on two people who are behind the ball, like weak side, and the basketball, right? Like you kind of have right. to pick. And so that, that weak side corner cut can be, uh, like like a wide open dunk. I, I there's this play from the Atlanta uh, Atlanta Cleveland game that like I might do a video on because I just it, it, it was a really fascinating sort of chess match of all these different things that were going on in the play. But long story short, it ends with Jared Allen's short roll assist to Mobley cutting from that corner. Um, whereas typically it's like you want that corner filled. So if if the tagger tags, then it's a wide open corner three. But Mobley's not, you know. He's not J.J. Redick from the, from the weekside corner. However, if he's cutting in, there's a nice lob opportunity. This one, the plan I'm thinking about was the lob, but it's almost impossible for the tagger to guard two, two those two big, two guys who can both, you know, throw down lobs, right? I think that's a good situation to get, like, Evan Mobley cutting with, cutting to the basket, catching the ball, like, mm-hmm. being able to go up with one or no dribbles. Um, with some space in front of him, that seems like a that seems like a positive offensive you know situation to to create. And I think what makes them different because but Mobley can he he his handles needs to get tighter and his you know but like he can put the ball on the floor somewhat. And so there was that whatever I I think it was a Ringer article about Gobert and like his his turnover rate if he has one dribble or like it was basically easy. It's basically like unless he gets a lob. Or unless he gets, you know, a zero dribble post up seal, then his uh, productivity goes way, way, way down. The thing with Allen and Mobley is that they can also, you know, dribble it once or twice if they have to. Like you have to guard Jared Allen at the free throw line a bit tighter than you have to guard Clint Capella, right? And right. so the fact that Jared Allen can drive from the nail, and the fact that Mobley can dribble once past the the, the sink and fill defender or whatever, um, it's it's also a great way for Cleveland to, you know, have non-spacers on the floor and still have a good offense. Um, I remember, like, during the hiatus, I, it's just way too time-consuming. I would love to redo it, but I was looking at basically <laughs> every team's offense 
and uh, what their offensive rating was with you know zero, one, or two non three point shooters on the floor at all times. And pretty much every team's offense was every team offense was better with five three point shooters, yeah. except Golden State for obvious reasons, right? With Draymond and Looney and like and their off ball. And actually, I'm gonna get back at the Bogut days, whatever. But like their off ball cutting. And the other exception was the like Duncan Robinson Miami Heat teams with uh, Bam because they also have a lot of the off ball cutting. So like every single team except for two, and I went back like six years looking at all this. It was it was Golden State like many many years in a row, and it was like one Miami team. And and then now I've noticed I don't know if it's true for other teams now, but Cleveland its offense is better and was last year too with multiple non spaces on the floor, especially like the new ad like Isaac Okoro. And it's one of the ways they one of the ways they have a good offense despite the lack of spacing is well-timed cuts by these people. And like, so sometimes, you know, if you have Kevin Love and Isaac Coral or Mo, whatever on the, on the weak side of the three point line, well, Kevin Love doesn't cut because he's a better shooter. And, and if it's, it doesn't matter if it's from the baseline or from the weak side wing, a Coral or Mobley or whoever will, will make that basket cut. And it's just very, very hard to stop a lob when you are the, you know, six, four sinking, if you're the help, if you're helping the helper and you're you're helping Mobley's defender who has to tag Allen, it's just very very hard to stop that, especially if they have a head and feet tall and a head of steam and yeah. Right, right. So that moving aside from that, like specific, and I think that maybe you know the the thing we're we're talking about with with both of these is kind of more is there's maybe a rise in creativity sort of in in scheme, but is getting back to my bigger question is have do you Am I over-indexing on the fact that I've loved to watch Utah play this year? That that uh, that this is becoming a thing. In in and also you even in like you know Atlanta they they are they they at least have two playmakers on the floor now or, mm-hmm. or you know in, in Cleveland um, mm-hmm. you know playing the playing the two point guards it seems like there are more play um, and even 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 Boston I mean they they have they're now down to second because Sacramento but Sacramento has a ton of playmakers they put on the floor oh, with. Yeah, with I mean, you know, you you put, you know, that Harrison Barnes is probably their fourth best playmaker, you know, in their in their starting lineup, and and you know, Harrison Barnes isn't like a fluid playmaker, but he's not terrible, and you know, with Sabonis and and Herder and along with Fox, so I guess that gets me back to my original question of is is some of this just you know teams are move maybe moving away a little bit from the. You know, with the World Cup going on, the the uh, the notion of a purely functional player, you know, a guy who just like sits in midfield and like fouls people, um, whatever the basketball equivalent of that. You know, I, I think uh, you know Tory Craig might be a might be the you know one of the, the examples of that in the current league. Like that player type is sort of I don't want to say getting phased out, but getting superseded by getting back to you know more guys who can do more things. Am I imagining this? Am I just wish casting this, or is this no, something I've, that's actually going on? And I don't know if you remember this, but this was one of the things I said to you, or like proposed to you before our last uh, podcast. And and actually, I didn't realize at the time, but you were sort of like teeing it up for me to talk on the subject. And I I whiffed, and I thought you were saying something else. <laughs> but it's the uh, um, and, and Tory Craig would be one example of the guy getting, but also the like the like pure knockdown shooter. Like unless you're Clay Thompson and you and you are in an emotion offense, like we, like Duncan Robinson gets schemed out of playoffs, partially because yeah. offensively, because they're like, hey, we're gonna have this play to drama all these pin downs, and teams 
can scout so well that they can sort of they can you know stop it and then they can you know besides not even defensive side of the floor but offense side of the floor and then like Joe Harris being another example where he uh, is a great player and it has historically been better in the regular season than the playoffs um, and so I've noticed this trend of sort of sacrificing sacrificing offensive shooting for more dribble pass shoot play, players. Um, like like the more of the Wiggins who isn't the shooter that, you know, Joe Harris, Duncan Robinson is, but can do something with the basketball. Even if he can't be your primary engine with the ball, he can sure. still attack a closeout a little bit better. And is this then- why this is why Max Struess is is kind of, you know, he he's he's a good shooter, but he's not Duncan Robinson, but because these other things and you know, he's a he's a shot he's a surprisingly good athlete for for someone of his build. And and that yeah. just sort of that versatility. And frankly, before he was injured, this was this was I think like Joe Harris not being as good in the playoffs has kind of surprised me because yeah. he's always been someone who's had a broader skill set than the than the he's been a very like effective at attacking closeouts and driving and finishing for most of his career, um, which is kind of yeah. Yeah, uh, and then the other, talk about more playmaking to bring it back to Utah. I've also kind of, I don't know if it's true for it's obviously not true for everything, but I, I how league wide trying to, but that more playmaking centers like like the bonus was the power forward next to next to Miles Turner, and then he has shifted to center and like Kelly Olynyk would often play like besides when he was you know on taking yeah. teams, but when he was with, when he was in Miami, he would play a lot with Bam, right? And so he would kind of, you might, maybe he was labeled as a center for some of those minutes, but he sort of was a power forward offensively and defensively. And then now it's like, hey, you're a starting center to Sabonis and Kelly Olynyk, and it's like more playmaking, less, less defense, less size and defense. Um, and that's funny because like that's kind of what every team does in the playoffs. And I was thinking about like the Dallas Mavericks where like you play Dwight Powell for the beginning of six minutes of every or of every half, and then you put like Kleba in at center, right? Or you play Bertans in at center, and a lot of teams kind of shift down in the playoffs. And Utah's like, why don't we just do that all year round? And that's that, I think, has a two prong effect because a offenses get better, right? If you if you have defenses get worse, and defenses get worse, right? So I don't. I'm trying to think of like like how many teams are doing this, but I've sort of noticed that like the big centers are playing, some of them are playing less minutes. Like Jones Bell and Trinity's minutes are down and Larry Nance's minutes are up. And uh, like Brooke Lopez is like the exception he was injured last year. And Adam's minutes are the same, but I wonder if they stay the same with Jaren, I mean, Jaron Jackson back, maybe because of foul trouble, they stay similar. But like that, that type of old school big center uh, who typically gets fewer minutes in the playoffs has been getting fewer minutes in the regular season. And a lot of the big centers from last year, like uh, Whiteside and uh, those guys aren't on teams this year. Um, so the big centers are playing fewer minutes except for like one or two exceptions. And Except, except for guys who are going to win defensive player of the year. Right. Because, and then the other one is Wendell Carter. Um, because, but, but he's a good player who's getting better, right? Um, but yeah, he, the, and he's more versatile than than the he, he like you know exactly. we're, we're talking about Jared Allen and and Robert Williams has always been a guy and this is I think why a lot of people were 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 fans of of Jalen Duran is is again guys who are 
um, you know, they, they have more ability with the ball in their hands than a Clint Capella does. And that's why I think partly the why Kevin Herter is having such a breakout this season. He's, it's not just like expanded role. It's, it's also he gets to do all those DHO things with Sabonis. Like they have great chemistry for players who just started playing together a month ago. And how many times, you know, does Sabonis do his little like screen and then pitch to Herter or like Herter will curl around for a layup and stuff like that. It's like, it's like, yeah, these guys add a lot. And so that's why my like favorite Fenner archetype is the fully realized Durin of like, can you be an athletic monster and be the drop big if we need you, but also can you do a little like high post playmaking and can you do a little like draw their center? It doesn't even have to be like, can you make 33% of your threes, but can you make them have to defend you closer? Because, you know, Jared Vanderbilt's kind of like that, where it's like if Aiden just sags off and is in the paint, well, then they're going to hit you with the DHO, like the, the old Draymond Green play. Um, and it's kind of the idea of having players who all have playmaking juice a little bit or is way different from the whole, like, I'm only going to shoot threes, I'm going to play defense, and I'm going to stick in the, I'm gonna stay in the corner, right? The sort of low maintenance three and D wing type. Um, it's like, well, now we need you to dribble. Teams have figured out how to guard that. It's like the stretch four from two years ago. We had a stretch four, they figured out how to guard that. And then there was a three and D fall forward. And it's like, yeah, we can just put our worst defensive player and hide Trey Young on you if he's not going to dribble. Um, but now it's like, all right, we'll trade a little bit of three-point shooting talent for the ability to put the ball in the deck. A question that just occurs to me, is there like almost a, a bifurcation in terms of, of which teams kind of get this and which teams don't? Yeah. Like I'm, I, I'm, I'm thinking that there are um, – some of them are – I don't want to you know, pick on Philly, but I will. Like I think they have the personnel – to you know, I think I, like Tobias Harris, I think is is, is pretty tra- has been when they've been healthy has been tra- pretty tragically underused all mm-hmm. season. As and same with the Anthony Melton, like they have they have the ability to put you know multiple synergistic playmakers on the floor, and they just kind of haven't because you know reasons because they like to run plays for shooting guards. Um, and Tyrese Maxey's been great, and so that so it works. Um, but you know there are are you know. On one hand, you're seeing, you know, whether it's it's it's, you know, Golden State, you know, getting back to that, and some of their, you know, part of the reason why Wiseman is out of the rotation and why kind of they've been good since Wiseman's been out of the rotation is he kind of breaks this for them. But you've got, you know, them and Boston and and Utah and Cleveland all, all going that way, and then some other teams are are you know have like to some degree Charlotte and Houston and 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 some of these other teams are are you know, maybe indexing on quote unquote talent, but not mm-hmm. necessarily this, this sort of, um, the, 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 this, this, this like versatility and playmaking. Am I, am I, that, that's sort of an unformed thought and I haven't done a, a, a full kind of study of, of, of this, but it seems like there, like there are, there is maybe a, because I'm wondering, are there just more players who can be versatile, or is, is it just that certain teams are are being better at kind of collecting them and using them together and getting almost the network effects that you're talking about? Like, all right, like S- Sabonis is great as a DHO guy. Uh, Sabonis with say you know Duncan Robinson, that's that's an interesting DHO. You put the, you put him with a guy, you put him with Kevin Herter, and now we're you know you add that that ball handling and playmaking that Herter has, even if he's not the shooter. 
um, all of a sudden that's like, that's more than one plus one. Yeah. It's, uh, it's I, to answer your question, like it was, are there some teams, uh, you know, not following the trend? So that's one of the things I noticed. Cause at first when I was, when, when you're like, Hey, Bowser, can you figure out what the entire offense is doing? <laughs> The entire NBA is doing to make the offense better. So the first thing I looked at was obviously it's like it's a three-point luck, which you had definitely looked at before too. And it's like no, actually they're shooting worse. I don't know if that's still true, but um, and then second, I was like league-wide trends, and there are some league-wide trends where you're like, yeah, transition could take fouls and stuff. And then the offensive rebounding. Um, but then what I kind of realized is some league-wide trends are blunted because half the league doesn't do them right. Um, so I looked at all the play type data, like the pick and roll ball hand or pick and roll, uh, roll to see if there was like a change. And it wasn't that big of a change. There was some here and there, but not, like, like not enough to explain actually and the trends seem to be going counter to what would make sense. Like, oh, this play is a better play type. Like the pick and roll ball handler is worse than pick and roll roll man. Um, but pick and roll roll man frequency has gone down and stuff like that. So then I realized, wait, I need to look at like individual teams. And so some teams are jumping like Phoenix jumping from offensive rebound three point percentage from 15th to first. It's cause like they're like Monty is like, Hey, let's do a new trend. Let's, you know, let's get, get points. Let's get available points that we didn't have, uh, that we can't have Cam Johnson and whatever, you know, um, Chris Paul's not making the shots and stuff like that. So let's find a way to juice our offense up in other ways. And then there's some teams that are just the same as last year. Um, this team that like have not changed in this trend. And so it, and it tends to, it's kind of funny, like it, this is definitely confirmation bias, but it tends to be the coaches who are criticized for not being innovative in other directions tend to be the teams that are not embracing the trends that I've noticed for this season. Um, and it's like, oh, they are, you know, they have not changed one bit in that regard. They run and places for shooting guards. They run places for shooting guards and they have, they have hardened and beat. So it's, so that, you know, the boat still flows. It makes sense. Um, but then other teams are like, wait, yes. You know, if we do more, like one of the things I talked about with, with you last time was like how Boston should do more like split cut actions because you have, you have, you know, Tatum and you don't have, your point guard is Marcus Smart instead of, you know, Chris Paul or whatever, right? So it's just running pick and roll every time. And I've been seeing more of that this year. And it's like, these, these all, and then I, of course, Utah does that as well, which makes sense based on the coaching trees. Um, and it's like, yeah, if we get more, it's going to be tough to guard because if we don't have Donovan Mitchell to do, to, you know, shot, low shot clock, bailout ball, how are we going to get points? It's like, we don't have Donovan Mitchell, but we do have Clarkson and Markin and, and be, a bunch of guys who can move and shoot and dribble a little and stuff like that. Kelly Olenek, um, and having not just like the same offenses, we're going to run a pick and roll to death. We're gonna pick, you know, we're going to do the, you know, Last year, Atlanta Hawks were going to run a pick and roll every single time. Um, it does seem to be that some coaches are embracing the trends more than others, which is why sometimes a league-wide average doesn't change much. Like I was looking at pace, um, and it—you know how this, you were talking about this on a recent episode, but uh, how there's so many different ways to sort of measure pace. But the quicker you initiate your offense, the better by one point per second and stuff like that. And so I was looking at different things, and the, and the change wasn't that different but the teams I was watching were going way faster. And I was like, oh, right. Utah is doing it, but Philly is not. You know, like like the older teams are not going faster. Ooh, this is, oh, I'm, I'm glad you went there. Yeah, all right. 
Well, because this this was I, I'm um, this is this is probably out. This is in the range of pure speculation, but I'm sort of wondering because broadly speaking, you know, and it's it's kind of ba- it's started to balance out a little bit. Obviously, now we're a month, a little bit, a little more than a month into the season, um, or just about a month into the season. Um, that I'm wondering, like we had we had a normal off season for the first time in a long time, and that extra month seems like it has let the younger teams like come flying out of the gate and the older teams, you know, maybe not. So I'm wondering, I'm almost wondering if teams had like, hadn't fully adjusted. Okay. We had a short off season. So this is the training camp we can do this year versus maybe the younger teams were so, so maybe the veterans who kind of need the the camp to kind of get themselves going but they didn't have the the full kind of bust ass training camp that we might've had in like 2019. Um, so they, they almost the first couple of weeks of the season were that ramp up period where they probably could have gone harder because they had that full extra month of recovering. And then the, so the young teams are just like primed. I, there's no way to test this theory, but it's, well, it's, it's, yeah. It, I, but I think you're on to something. Uh, it's something that I was, it's one of my hunches. I don't have like a lot of room. But we had the, the, the short off season because of COVID, right? And then the, and then the Bucks win the ring, and then they had the Olympics. So then a lot, like, like Drew Holder was on the plane the next day, and a lot of the players were playing the, in the Olympics. And not just playing in the Olympics, but also had to fly halfway across the world to go do so, right? So that cuts down on your sort of off-season rest. So you have the COVID shortened off-season, and then you have the Olympics, and then you have more of a normal off-season. But there was the, uh, the Eurobasket where some of the younger players could like marketing could get a lot of needed reps that has allowed that it kind of helped the younger players development without draining the Drew holidays, you know, um, uh, whatever energy and giving them, sorry, let me rephrase that. The older players, not the older older players, but the players who don't need the added reps are finally getting a more normal length off season. Sure. And some of the younger players over Eurobasket are getting good reps. And partly it's like, is offensive rating higher because some, the players who need reps are getting reps, and then the players who need reps are getting reps, or some of them, at least the European ones. Um, and then also, but the Father Time thing I was going to bring up, where it's like, it's like, yeah, Miami, like, is Lowry showing signs of age, and the Lakers showing signs of age. So is their defense kind of being held back because, you know, Father Time is undefeated? Uh, and I don't really like, you know, it's hard to test that. Like, hey, let me look at the age of. Are are you not hustling on defense because of age or because morale is low, right? Um, but that is a hunch of mine, as you say. And I have noticed the sort of younger teams are doing better, and I don't 100% know the mechanism for that, but I have a few theories. Um, Let's let's. I, I think that's it. If you have those theories, I think that might be a, that might be as good a spot as any to end. So we can both uh, we can we uh, we can both go feast on some turkey after. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things is like is like we talked about more cutting and more off ball movement and more DHOs and stuff like that, more split cuts. And if you're LeBron James, that's the exact. It's, it's a like I think that was a good change for offenses to get better and include improve their offensive rating. But B, that makes LeBron James's life a lot harder as like a, you know, 52-year-old man or however old he is now <laughs> if he has to go chase those guys around all game long. And then those young players 
are fully arrested. And it's like I'm saying, it seems like we don't have any truly awful offenses dragging offensive rating down. We don't have the process Sixers getting 92 points a night. And it's like Orlando and Oklahoma City, all these teams, even if they're not like good yet, they all have like somewhat built around this star type player. Like there's no real, there's no team that just has fully bereft of talent, which makes, which means there's fewer off nights for the 34 year old guys who have to run around and defend these people all day long. And anecdotally, it does seem that your defense goes first before your offense. Um, and that seems to be true for, if you go to any pickup basketball court, the guy's like, I can still shoot threes, but I'm not really going to move on defense. And so one of the things I think the, the, the young team is being good and the increased running around, the off-ball cuts, off-ball screens, I think is A, just better offense than stationary, but B, I think it's harder to guard, especially if you're getting older and it feels like certain, like the teams that are like the Clippers and the Lakers and a few other older teams, it's, it's like starting the, starting the show signs of age, Miami Heat, things like that. Um, and it's a lot easier to guard a guy if he's standing in the corner doing the P.J. Tucker, you know, waiting for the, waiting for the kickout three. Um, wait, what are some of your theories on this? No, I, I, I mean, I, it, it, it hasn't been, um, I think that's a good one. It's just like, oh man, I got to chase this guy again. Why stop moving? Like, I think that's, I think that's a, that's a pretty solid theory to start with. Yeah. Another thing, um, our offense is figuring out zone defenses. Uh, I was looking at some of this in the, and for the first time in like five years, at least the percentage of zone defense is going slightly down and the points for possession is, is low, but, you know, I, I wonder if the sample size, you know, if you, uh, how, if that will stay low the whole time, but like, except for Portland and Miami, um, it seems to be that like, hey, we'll throw a zone at them is less of the panacea that it used to be because often teams have gotten, I remember like when they- Well, it's the not unique defense. anymore. Right, right. And I remember changing the legal defensive rules. It was Tracy McGrady or Kobe O'Brien was complaining and, and they were like, we didn't go to college. College is when you learn how to beat a zone. Why, you know, now we're in the NBA and we have to learn how to play against, like, like they were complaining about it. But sure enough, you know, they figured it out. Kobe won rings and Tracy scored a lot of points and was a player to watch. So I'm wondering if it's like, it jumped from like, like I was looking at a few years ago, some teams a few years ago played against a zone defense on two possessions in the season. <laughs> they played against it twice, on two possessions. And, and then the, the trend went up, but it's starting to go down. It, it seemed to be a peak last, I think last year. Um, and I think it's less of a surprise. And, you know, teams are figuring out how to, it was, there was somebody's joke was like, every NBA coaching staff should hire a high school coach so they know how to beat a box in one. Like, like when Toronto started doing the box in one and, and the teams like didn't know how to face it, but like every high school team knows how to face the box in one because you see it a lot more. Um, and then sure enough, you know, you figure out the box in one isn't as good or as effective anymore. But I wanted the same thing about the, the zone where it's like, hey, all right, you're in that zone defense. All right, this is how we're going to beat it. And which is not to say that like every team is going to stop doing the zone because certain teams have better personnel for it, but it does seem to be less of a, of a cure-all of just like, oh, we're not ready for it. We have this ATO that only works against a man defense and now it's a zone. So now we're going to pass the ball around 15 seconds before we realize what's going on where like every high school point guard knows how to, oh, they're in a the zone, switch the offense, right? Like that's just like ingrained into them. And so I, I the, 
if I remember, the points per possession against zone is actually pretty high. But I think the same, you know, like, I wonder if it will stay high because teams overall, like league averages, are playing zone less often. I think offenses are figuring out. They seem less surprised, and they seem to be like, all right, you're in this, you're in three-two zone. We know this is going to be open. Bam, open corner three or two-three zone. All right, this is going to be open. Bam. Um, so I'm kind of curious if that like that like zone defense to surprise them uh, isn't as effective anymore, and maybe that's why offenses are getting better. Interesting. It's a good theory. It's a good theory as any. We'll see. I think it's, there's a lot of season left, and and there's many more adjustments to be made, and then we get to get to the playoffs and and start all over again. Yeah, and uh, redistribution of talent seems to be better this year. Uh, I wonder. I don't know. It's another hunch of mine where it's like where it's like there seems to be a lot of mutually beneficial trades, or at least non-zero sum trades, where it's like Utah does not. Like Utah gets better after trading players, but Cleveland gets better too. And the Boyan and Kelly Olynyk trade seems to be benefiting both teams. And like the the Sabonis Halliburton trade from last year, it's like as much as you whatever you get top of the trade, it does seem to be like Sabonis and Fox is a better pairing than you know than two guards, and then also Turner with Halliburton is a better pairing. Um, so there seems to be a lot of like talent around the league, and a lot of it just seems unique how many trades either benefited both teams or were not zero sum, like, like, because like role players have gotten the chance to expand the roles. And so um, it's, it's a, it's a tough question. You ask me like, Hey, why is the entire <laughs> offense and the offense doing better? And it was very fun to look out. And I'm going to, I have a lot of things that I'm going to, that I have noticed that I'm going to keep my eye on. And those are a few of them. Oh, cool. Well, I think, uh, I think this is, we we haven't covered nearly the uh, range of possibilities, but we only had a you know we only had forty five minutes, and so I think we've done good work here. Um, yeah, it's like the Jay Z lyric: um, "Difficult takes a day, impossible takes a week." So we're gonna maybe have to do a few more episodes if we want to accomplish the impossible of explaining the entire NBA trend. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think that's a lot of games to make you watch, so I don't, I won't yeah. even I won't try to. Um, get you got anything you want to uh, you want to pitch or tell people where they can find you? For as long as the lights are still on, you can find me on Twitter at Bowser2Bowser. Um, that's the number two. I also have uh, Bowser to Bowser Medium, which which will be more writing soon, especially if Twitter goes down. And there's also, if you Google the basketball action dictionary, I created a dictionary where, like, if you hear somebody say zipper cut or 45 cut or span pick, whatever it is, you can, there's some definitions, there's some explanations, some variations. There's a lot of, lot of gifts. One person told me, you have maybe too many gifts. And I was like... Oh, that's a good thing seems, to be. Seems that's impossible. a good complaint. Yeah, yeah, right? You're too thorough. And I was like, that's the exact compliment I want is to be criticized for being too thorough. So I appreciated that guy who said that. Um, so, yeah, Bowser to Bowser uh, on Twitter. And I honestly don't know where I'm going to go <laughs> if, <laughs> if Twitter goes dark because it has been so – NBA Twitter for years has been such a I, – I, I've loved it. I've learned so much, met so many cool people. Um, but uh, until someone wants to give me a job writing about basketball full time, hint, hint, um, <laughs> I will be at Bowser to Bowser at Twitter or wherever we go, you know, MySpace, Mastodon, Instagram, Tumblr, whatever we go instead. Um, that's where to find me. Well, thanks a lot for joining me and, and thanks folks for listening and hopefully everyone in the U S has a happy Thanksgiving. Um, and I will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening.